This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I'm joined today by my guest, Leah Cardos. Leah is a senior lecturer in music at Kingston University, London, in the UK, where she co-founded the Visconti Studio with music producer Tony Visconti. Leah's latest book is Black Star Theory, The Last Works of David Bowie, and is published by Bloomsbury Academic. Leah, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Bradley. Please share with us what your book is about. Okay, so it's about David Bowie's last works, which are um, from nineteen sorry from twenty thirteen, the next day, through to twenty sixteen's Black Star, and it also includes the musical that he did in twenty fifteen called Lazarus. What was your research process when writing the book? So the research process um, was quite intensive, really. Um, The whole project began because I wanted to write a 33 and a third book about Blackstar and the proposal wasn't accepted. And so I decided to shop it around. And um, uh, the editors of the Eccentric series uh, were interested in it, but in a larger idea, like not just about one album. So um, that kind of opened up the scope to considering late style, um, you know, uh, post-war artists as they age and how they um, manage fame, how they deal with um, mortality or how they uh, address aging and mortality in their work. And also with Blackstar and, you know, um, Bowie's posthumous, um, you know, iconic status and sort of how he's changed, you know, his image has changed into something quite different since he's died compared to when he was alive. There was also that wrapped up in it too. So I really wanted to find a way in to talk about the music and uh, and start from the music and sort of from the music um, ideas that refract outward 
uh, and to deal with them in that way. And so um, that was my my research really was about analysing the music first, looking at the assemblage of ideas that come there, and then from there building out the book and the book structuring from that. And it was really important as well because, you know, I'm a fan and so much emotion wrapped up in, you know, your, your favourite rock star dying and so much discourse around Black Star, um, you know, what, what, what it might symbolise, what it might mean to people. And, you know, I had to really kind of uh, focus in on, you know, it doesn't really matter what the music means because it means something different to everybody. What's really interesting is what is it doing? And so from a musicological perspective, uh, focusing on that first and then everything else kind of connecting, like, you know, staring at the night sky and seeing a constellation, these things sort of came into, um, emerged into my field of vision. And from there, the book sort of came together. You just mentioned light style now, and you talk about light style in the opening of your book, along with the concept of lateness. Can you explain how you applied this to Bowie's work? Yeah. Um, I mean, well, lateness is a bit of a sticky term and it's a little bit, I mean, I think it's a bit problematic because when we start talking about lateness, then we start invoking lateness and greatness, which I think is a bit dangerous because then we start sort of projecting upon um, aging artists, all of this sort of extra ability, this specialness, and um, we start banding about the idea of genius. And I don't really like that sort of language because, um, you know, particularly in an artist like Bowie, you know, his whole career trajectory was a series of successes and failures. You know, it's really important for an artist to grow um, and to um refine their process through, you know, uh, trial and error. So um, the lateness, I really just wanted to define that and I wanted to use it, but I, I guess I had to sort of stake my claim to the term early on and sort of explain what I meant by it. Um, but Bowie's career, you know, is marked by so much surface change, you know, so many aesthetic changes. And I thought that there's definitely something that happens in 2002 from then on to the end of his life where there's a lot of consistency. And so I just wanted to paint a picture of lateness being a, a state of being, you know, a circumstance that he was in, a way of working that he felt comfortable in, that he maintained for a period of time um, that allowed him to have some autonomy in terms of what he was writing, when he was putting it out there, what you know, what he was doing with his time. Uh, and this period to me seemed like it sort of coalesced into this sort of lateness. And the music seems to be dealing with uh, topics that not only uh, deal with, you know, characters and personas, but also sort of go backwards and look to the past and and pull from his own oeuvre, his own lexicon in a kind of, you know, cannibalistic way. So, yeah, I just thought, because I didn't see anyone else sort of talking about that, I thought, well, I'm just going to put my line in the sand and say, this is what I think Bowie's lateness is. This is what I think is the taxonomy of his lateness, you know, how you can find it. And I hope, you know, that other scholars um, will, you know, maybe challenge that or want to develop it further. I really just needed it as a starting point for my book, um, really. But it could have been a book on its own, I think. The more I dug into it, the, the richer it got. And it's an incredibly rich book. And I know it's a considerable challenge when you're writing about an artist that you love to take away that specialness. So um, kudos to you for, for doing that admirably. Well, thank you. You mentioned that you structured your book loosely on the concept of the three-part stage illusion from the novel The Prestige, which Bowie would appear in in the film adaptation. What is that concept and how did it inform your book structure? 
So the concept of the illusion is that there is the setup and then there's the act, the performance, and then there's the prestige, uh, you know, or the payoff. And um, I was dealing with three elements. And one of them was a play that, uh, you know, it, it was a performance on stage. And I kind of also wanted to play into the disappearing act nature of, of you know, the um, the work that was, you know, created by someone who knew he was dying and it was a secret. And then it all kind of felt, you know, when, when Blackstar came out, um, no one knew he was ill. No one expected him to just die like that. And so it was a big shock and it did feel like a kind of disappearing act. It did feel like all the clues were there. You just didn't see them. There was a lot of misdirection going on. And so I thought it was an elegant way to structure the book in three parts. One where I could, you know, in the setup, I could kind of introduce my method in a stealthy way. Like, so I didn't want it to be a an academic book where like there's this huge literature review and then a big methodology statement and then you get into the book. So I tried to disguise that into this kind of setup idea where I'm setting up the idea of, you know, the artist being an assemblage artist and I'm setting up the idea of lateness and testing out the musicological basis with a series of assemblages and and kind of, I mean, it's really quite academic in its bones, but when you read it, hopefully it doesn't feel that way. And I, I really wanted it to be accessible to fans and enthusiasts and, you know, other people interested in art and not just academic people. So um, the structure really helped me with that. And then, of course, as I said, the the performance, um, the, the play allowed me to then shift my focus away from art methods uh, and to just, you know, the effective performance and what that is achieving. And then the prestige is really my favourite part, which is where I talk about the album that I want to talk about all along and everything else kind of sets up for that. Um, and I get to also quicken the pace of the discussion to like start sort of bringing in a kind of frenzy of philosophy and art and all these different things, you know, a kind of this idea of everything kind of orbiting around um, a black star, but then kind of getting pulled over um, and streaking over the event horizon. So I really wanted to sort of create this kind of drama with the structure of the work as well. So that's what it was about. It wasn't actually, you know, I'm not trying to say that Bowie's part in the prestige was really significant because it was just a bit part, but it allowed me a, a structural device, which I thought would be useful. And structure is incredibly important. And when you talked about how the academic nature doesn't come through, it is a very readable book, and but there's a lot of great ideas that come through very subtly that you then explore. Um you quote Richard Elliott saying that the late voice is defined as something that contains time, age, authority, and authenticity. How did you reflect, um, how does that reflect Bowie's self at this time? Yeah, well, there's this idea that a few scholars have touched on. Um, Shelton Waldrop writes about it in his book, um, Performing Bowie, where, you know, Bowie's self, in so much as we perceive it or can perceive it is really held in his voice you know he's plastic with his voice he uses it very theatrically and yet all the time he only sounds like himself and so the idea of his identity being wrapped up in that very singular voice was just a really nice one um but it's also something you know that um Richard talks about in his book about sort of aging artists who grow into their voices and their voices become richer with storylines you know histories geographies um their life stories, their myth. And I think that 
you know, particularly in Bowie's last works, certainly in the late period entirely, he's drawing upon his myth and he's playing with it, you know. And I think Jonathan Barnbrook, the graphic designer that worked with him during that period, also speaks about this, you know, Bowie's inviting you to play with his history, to play with his myth. That's the language, that's the lexicon, you know, that's the expressive vocabulary. You know, we quote something from Bowie's career and that becomes meaningful in this context because it's, proximate and nearby to other ideas and then from there you know the the listener then is now engaging in a kind of bowie literacy you know it's all very quite sophisticated but i think late artists operate on that level not just bowie but you know dylan particularly at the moment and a few others who are making new music and not just you know playing their old stuff and so yeah i think it's an incredibly rich idea You say in your book, there is a lingering temptation to read the songs of the late period as semi-autobiographical, if only for the coincidences. How is Bowie more semi-autobiographical at this time than earlier persona throughout his career? Um, So in the the late period, or, you know, from 2002, um, Bowie's persona sort of became really normal. Um, And you know, he seemed like a normal hum- human being and not some kind of impossible alien or, uh, you know, any kind of theatrical character or rendering of, you know, something that's obviously not a real person. So this performance of a, of a real person um, is really uncanny. You know, he's showing up in interviews and he's making dad jokes and he's writing songs where the protagonists of the songs live in New York and uh, older and maybe they have families, maybe they're parents, um, maybe they're, you know, full of regrets and, and you know, they're wistful about the past. And so all of these um, features can be read as like, oh, definitely Bowie's singing about himself. You know, there's a temptation there. But, of course, I don't think Bowie actually ever really does um, sing from a an, an authentic, you know, personal perspective of David Jones. The closest thing we get to something like that is um, I Can't Give Everything Away from Blackstar, where he seems to be addressing the listener um, in a kind of authentic, personal way. But, but yeah, you know, there are a lot of things um, that Bowie's been doing all along that flirt with the idea of reality, that bring, uh, you know, fiction and fact together and kind of blur the edges. Um, he's been doing that kind of thing a long time in his songwriting uh, and sort of obliquely referring to his own developing philosophies and spirituality and his own anxieties, but always couched in um, a construction Um and I think that, you know, it, it'd be a mistake to read Bowie's lyrics literally and to sort of, you know, analyse something like Blackstar and go, oh, he's singing about his cancer or, oh, he's singing about Iman. Um, that's a mistake. And so, yeah, that's what I meant when I said people attempted uh, to, to interpret things that way. What you're saying kind of coincides with a great chapter that you write about the remystification of Bowie's brand and identity. And you say that celebrities of the early 21st century were seen trading their privacy and oftentimes their dignity for the oxygen of public attention. But Bowie was unwilling to be a part of this. What was he doing during this time? Well, he was convalescing. Um, So, you know, he actually made himself quite available previously, uh, you know, in the late 90s, and I suppose the first couple of years of the new millennium, he was on his own social media website, BowieNet, you know, and he was interacting with fans and uh, chatting 
in the chat box and asking questions. And the gigs around that time also had a similar accessible vibe. You know, he sort of recognized people uh, that were part of the fan group and it all seemed quite cozy. Um, But then when he had his heart trouble uh, on the reality tour and sort of disappeared, uh, he never came back. And and during that period from about 2004 till right till the end, um, that accessible David Bowie never returned and and he was um, purposefully removed. Um, you know, you couldn't get to him. You couldn't contact him. He didn't talk to the media. He didn't do anything he didn't want to do. Um, so he became reclusive. And during that period, you know, the opposite happened uh, in the world at large. You know, uh, social media sites became the norm and, you know, music artists engaged with fans on that level more so. Um, but Bowie did the opposite. Uh, maybe he was exhausted by Maybe he knew it wasn't the way to do things, but um, you know, I think what it did is it remystified his brand, and that was really crucial to the work that he did later in life. Uh, you know, where he could actually uh, almost retreat behind imagery, you know, behind the white square of the next day's artwork, or become a symbol of the star. Um, he could more successfully play around with these grander ideas of you know imagery and myth later in his life, and I don't think that would have been as easy to do if he was more present and available in other means. So we were talking about earlier that any biographical elements of his music is just coincidental, but before he steps out of the spotlight, he's at a point in his career where he is often interpreted as reaching back and self-sampling. What are some examples of what he's doing? Well, I wouldn't say that coincidences are are coincidental, (laughs) if that makes sense. You know, that, you know, that song where he discusses this thing that could be from his life. I'm not saying that that's purely coincidental. I think it's very purposeful. He, He enjoys creating a tissue of doubt. He enjoys making things complicated. And that's been all the way through his career. But yes, in the late period, he does engage in self-sampling a lot more. Um, you start seeing these backwards glances to you know the start of his career. He'll do them himself, whether that be showing up on them in the music video to Where Are We Now uh, with Tony Ursula's puppets from his 50th birthday concert or wearing the shirt MS Song of Norway, which is a direct reference to the girlfriend he had in 19... 19- 68. Um, All of these are very conscious. And he would also, uh, with Tony Visconti, you know, once they were reunited in the new millennium, they'd start purposefully pulling in sonic vernacular into their productions, whether it be like, uh, you know, Hansa era studio techniques from 1977, or the use of a particular effect, um, like the Eventide Harmonizer, things like that that are really quite conspicuous, that if you're aware of Bowie's work, you'd spot it and it would bring new richness to the surface of the song because then you start thinking, well, why is that there and what does that do and how does that change all the things that are in proximity to it? So there's a lot of lovely uh, complexity that happens in Bowie's work in the late period and it doesn't really happen anywhere else. Uh, And this could be, um, you know, one of the conditions of his lateness or actually it could be um, the fact that he's producing music on his own alone more often and not, you know, with a collaborator in a studio or in a room. So we've touched upon Tony Visconti and the next day just briefly, and we're going to move into talking about those. But before we talk about 
those albums. Walk us through the evolution of Bowie's working relationship with Tony Visconti from the beginning to these final albums. Right. Oh, it's a really long story. Um, so, uh, you know, Bowie was a young uh, wannabe musician on the scene in London in the mid-60s, trying to find his foothold in the music industry. And Tony was a young, wide-eyed musician in love with English music who, and his wife at the time, moved to London uh, to work um, in the studio industry. And they met in 1967, um, around the same time that Tony also met Mark Bolan. And, you know, Bowie was an unknown, so he was producing music with David, um, early singles like London by Tata and things like that. They also, you know, became friends then and shared interests in Buddhism, um, you know, hung about. I think Tony and his wife lived with David and members of his band and his wife, Angie, um, at some point in the early 70s and Tony was in a band. Tony ended up producing Space Oddity, which is the first LP that Bowie did in 1969 with Mercury Records. And then um, Tony's kind of present um, through the first couple of years. So he's involved with uh, The Man Who Sold the World album and he plays bass on that. And then for a few years while Bowie's doing the Ziggy thing at Trident Studios uh, with Ken Scott. Uh, Tony's working with Mark Bolan and T-Rex on a, an impressive run of like now iconic albums. But they get back together again in 1974 for Diamond Dogs. Uh, Tony helps him produce that. And then from there to 1980, it's just a run of classic albums, one after the other. Uh, Young Americans, which started out as the Gauster, um, and then in Berlin with uh, Bowie and Eno with Low, followed by Heroes, Lodger, and then Scary Monsters. I think um, they did an EP release of the Baal um, soundtrack by Bertolt Brecht in 1983. But once Bowie moved on with Nile Rogers to work on Let's Dance, they actually had a falling out and they didn't work together again until the end of the 90s. And it really became official with um, 2002's Heathen album, but they were working together from 1998. And obviously from that point to the end of Bowie's life, they were together again. And so they could tap into um, a vast wealth of, you know, proven working methods and, um, you know, a really strong musical relationship. And I think that the production in the latter period of Bowie's career, you know, has this consistency and um, it also has this literacy with the rest of Bowie's musical output, which I think is really lovely. The first work you explore deeply in the book as part of Bowie's late period is the 2013 album, The Next Day, which came after after a very long hiatus. It was a decade since um, 2003's reality. Talk to us about how the album was recorded and released. So the next day was produced entirely in secret. Um, everybody involved with it had to sign NDA forms. Um, the secret almost got let out the bag a number of times. So it was really quite a miracle they kept it um they kept Storm on it for so long. But um it took a long time. Um officially, you know, the the production from sort of the first demo sessions to the final mixing sessions stretches over 
three years, which is a lot. Um, and then add to that, you know, some of the song material may have been lingering around in Bowie's archives and notebooks for many years. One of the song ideas reportedly dates back to 1979. So in terms of like its gestation period, it it's sort of conspicuous as like the album that took Bowie the longest to make and execute. Um, even the vocals took months. He'd sort of go away for months on end, leaving everyone silent. You know, they didn't know the project was going to happen. He called it um, he called it everything but an album, right? He called it a project, an experiment. Um, he'd go away for months and like think about the track lo- the track listing. There was a lot of stuff there, and so um, you know, when I spoke to Tony about the making of the album. He seemed to think that there was obviously a sort of a lot of thought that went behind it. It was very intentional, all the aspects of it. But also he referred to a little bit of um, vulnerability, a little bit of a crisis of confidence. He just, he'd been away for so long, he didn't know if he still had it. And so there was, yeah, it was a really interesting album in terms of when it came out. It was such a big project, so much material, you know, and so many confusing forms of it. There was the Next Day Extra um, EPs and there was box sets and there were versions happening all over the world with different tracks on there. So, you know, it was a overwhelming thing to, you know, experience as a, as a Bowie fan waiting for so long to have this sort of pop out of nowhere, this huge project, and for it to be so confusing and dense at the same time. I'm a huge fan of that album, and I remember where I was when Where Are We Now came out. It's one of my favorite Bowie songs, and certainly I would not have sensed a, a crisis in confidence with how great that album is. No, it, it sounds super confident, doesn't it? I mean, it's so bold and and assured and muscular, and he sounds so healthy and vibrant. I mean, and the songs are, are dark and strident. There's, it's just a really impressive comeback, I suppose, but also a, a kind of troubling one. You know, around the edges, you sort of think, okay, there's a lot of songs about murder here, and it's a, it's quite bloodthirsty, and you know, it begins with quite troubling imagery and ends with quite murky um, subject matters. So it's a, it's a compelling piece, but yeah, and 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 you know, when uh, just like you, you know, when where are we now came out, it was just like, this is amazing. Where's he been? What's going on? This is fantastic. So let's dive into the lyrical themes of the album. There's a lot of murder. There's a lot of darkness. It ends with that song with the lyrics, my father ran the prison. Let's discuss those lyrical themes of the next day. Sure. Um, This was something that uh, I think I probably enjoyed analyzing the most about the next day because there's a lot of sort of discussion about, you know, what could he mean? What does this mean? There's a lot of people pulling in literary references, particularly um, Chris O'Leary does this really well in his writings about Bowie where he pulls in, you know, um, themes, scenes, uh, imagery, words from various books. And we know that Bowie was incredibly well read. And so that created a really nice sort of uh, thread of discourse where we sort of thought, well, you know, what can we find? What what could be, you know, a reference to history or a reference to books? And Tony Visconti also said in interviews at the time that a lot of the songs were about subjects that he'd been reading about. Um, But When I went to look at the songs with, I suppose, fresh eyes and fresh ears, um, what really struck me about the whole project was that it was playing with identity and it was really inviting the listener, uh, the observer, to construct something Bowie-shaped, something Bowie-ish, to 
fill the blank space. And, you know, the, the songs are very provocative in terms of they evoke the past and they bring uncomfortable ideas to the surface. Um, and then, you know, what it felt like to me was that the songs were kind of challenging. The whole project is challenging the listener to go, well, what do you make of that? And what does this mean to you? And it really reminded me of assemblage art, you know, when you have something quite mundane, but the way it's arranged causes these possibilities and causes something deep, you know, sort of crack in it to sort of access something quite deep. And I feel like the next day does that amazingly well. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So when we talk about shaping our own Bowie shape or Bowie identity... One of the most striking features of the next day is the cover, which subverts the classic 1977 album Heroes by putting a white square over his face. And this is something that still perplexes Bowie fans to this day. How did the white square come to be, and why did Bowie choose this method to like reach back this way? Well, um, I spoke to Jonathan Barnbrook about this at length because you know I had lots of questions as well. And um, you know, it's not just that one cover. You know, if you've got the vinyl. Ad- issue then you open it up and it's sort of it's defying your engagement it's sort of keeping Bowie at arm's length even the lyrics are just one big block of text um the next day extra uh is just you know everything's named as if it was just archival so just tracks and light and you know just basically like just generic labels on everything you sort of have to work it out for yourself um but when I spoke to Jonathan Barnbrook about it. He sort of, you know, told me on one hand it was, you know, a, a pragmatic way of, of working with an image that already exists, but also, you know, doing an anti-advertising, a kind of punk rock defacement of something that's quite iconic. So that was a kind of political thing to do. Um, but also it has its links to um, the Ukrainian artist Malevich and his white square uh, painting where, you know, it seems abstract um, and it seems like um, it's covering up something, but actually it's not covering up much at all. You can still tell that Bowie's there and Bowie is there just in a different form, you know, his ears, his hands. You can tell it's Heroes. Heroes is there. And so it pulls in a lovely dimension, this kind of, you know, fourth dimension of, of, of reference, which I think is again, instructive on how we can approach the next day as as a whole piece, you know, that we have to construct our idea of Bowie. We're being invited to participate in the album and make sense of it because he's not going to help you. It's going to be uh, a barrage of imagery and words and, you know, references and they can add up to something. And I think that's what the magic of the next day is. And perhaps, you know, in those early days when people were – 
you know, reviewing it and fans were talking about it because it was sort of obscured and because a lot of the album was hidden to be discovered. Um, there was some frustration with it. Uh, a lot of people kind of threw their hands up about it. Um, but I think, I hope, actually, I believe that, you know, in 10 years' time, it'll be held up as one of his strongest pieces. And I think it's only going to get better over time. I think so. It's still an album I return to rather frequently. The next major project you discuss in your book is the stage musical Lazarus. Please share with us what this is and how it came about. Yeah, so Lazarus is, I suppose, a musical, although the people involved with it often called it a play with Bowie's music or a piece. Um, it's loosely framed as a, I say loosely, it's, it's it's explicitly framed as a sequel to The Man Who uh, Fell to Earth, the book by Walter Tevis that was made into a film uh, by Nicholas Rogue in which Bowie played the leading role. Um, however, it is abstract, it's hallucinatory, it's dreamlike, it's um, quite a dense piece, it's quite dark. And I think, you know, if no one knew really that he no one knew he was sick no one really knew what the piece was about until he died so it was quite obtuse quite hidden um people went and saw it expecting a jukebox musical and and it was kind of one but it didn't make much sense it was very dark it was very sad it was about death and um yeah i i loved it i went to new york to see it you know, we came out of that performance, we were all so dis discombobulated uh, and excited and kind of sad and kind of heartbroken by it. Um, we saw it a few times in New York. All of us had different ideas about what it was about, realizing that, you know, we're going to be thinking about this for years. And then after he died, we saw it again. And of course, it had changed entirely. Um, and it was one of these pieces that now still plays um, to packed out houses all over the world and has become a strange sort of site of um, not public grieving, but a kind of a place where people go to, to um, I suppose, in a, it sounds macabre, but to, you know, watch um, a death happen. And it's somehow it's very healing. It's a performance of a death. And, you know, Bowie's very self-consciously projected into that scene, um, not only by fans, but, you know, it's in the script and it's by the use of music. And it's referring to a time in 1975 when Bowie's um, persona became, you know, inexorably linked to a, f a fictional character, Thomas Jerome Newton. And so it's this lovely entanglement that Bowie plays upon, which I think is really elegant. And, um, yeah, it's a wonderful piece. It's fascinating. Of course, it's very hard to write about it um, because it doesn't exist really in the public realm as a, as a performance. You know, there was a filmed version that was screened um, during the lockdown in a streaming website. But uh, aside from the shows that exist, you know, People can't look it up online and, and watch it. So it was quite difficult for me to write about it. Um, I had to describe a lot of it, which was something that I had to work really hard on in terms of getting the tone right. So there's a dichotomy you establish uh, between a poem by Emma Lazarus, and this poem popularizes the American myth of being a safe harbor for immigrants. And you draw this as a parallel to the book and film of The Man Who Fell to Earth, which you say is an allegory and the exploitation isolation of immigrants through a marked otherness. How does the how does that dichotomy contribute to the play? Well, uh, you know, there, there are a number of references wrapped up in Lazarus, but the 
the Emily Lazarus poem is actually cited um, as a reference. It's actually, you know, if you buy the script um, that was published in 2016, the the poem is represented at the end of the script as a postscript, and it was referred to as well in the um, the program notes of the show when we got there. And so the idea of it being possibly functional as an allegory for outsiders and immigrants and people that visit um, America and perhaps uh, are sort of chewed up and spat out by the society there um, is something that traces back to the film itself, you know, the way it's portrayed in the book, you know, it's about an outsider who becomes corrupted by humanity, who, um, who experiences isolation, deep, profound isolation, despite um, having human relationships. But it's also an allegory about addiction and alcoholism. So there's a lot of, um, you know, deep threads that are woven into the tapestry. Um, but what's interesting about the the outsider, the immigration angle, of course, is that Bowie was an outsider in America. Um, you know, he left England, his home country, in his 20s and he never returned. And, you know, he settled as an outsider in New York, um, and which is incidentally where, you know, in the book, that's where Thomas Jerome Newton ends up trapped. And in conversations that I was researching around the gestation and the development of, La of Lazarus the musical, it's interesting to find quotes from, say, Robert Fox, who, you know, commented that over lunch at the Savoy, um, Bowie explains to him that I need to write this musical about an alien uh, from another planet trapped in New York. And, you know, it's it's easy for, you know, to see when it's in text like that how the situations of, of Bowie being terminally ill in New York, um, stuck uh, where he is, not being able to get home. It brings in quite a lovely um, subtext, which, I don't know, it, it makes the whole thing a lot more poignant, I think. It makes me think of why Lazarus is not more available because of those deeper themes about marked otherness and the immigration, because especially now as Americans are evaluating their own myth concept, you know, the they're experiencing their own dichotomy, this promised land of America versus the reality, as we've seen the last couple of years with um, um, restriction on various freedoms, as well as the, you know, increased Islamophobia, racism that's happening. It's, it, it's a very, the concept behind Lazarus is very now and it's very prescient i think yeah i would agree um however um i think lazarus it it, it suggests all of those issues of outsiderness but of course the actual play itself is is a is a dream staged in a in a psyche and you know what we have is is traumas and iterations of the self archetype sort of interacting um in this space that um it makes it sort of a fantastical, um, insular, very private thing, and so I think you know, in terms of, in terms of the script, you know, you sort of spend this entire journey st stuck in a mind that's wrestling with itself, and you know, brought to the assemblage of that is the backstory of of Thomas Jerome Newton and the science fiction narrative, but also Bowie's narrative as an outsider and an, a figure of an alien on Earth, and then to sort of smack. Emily Lazarus's poem at the end is just like 
I don't know, it's just this wonderful like sort of cold shower at the end to be like, oh, right, you know, oh, gosh, <laughs> you know, sort of pulling again this idea of actually this is an allegory for outsiders everywhere. It's not just about one man at the end of his life. And um, yeah, and I agree with you. I, I, I do wish that it was more available because the soundtrack on Spotify is just, you know, Bowie covers. It doesn't really mean anything. It hasn't got a narrative structure to it. Um, although I do know that the... Evo van Hove uh, staging in London from 2017 exists as a film. And I've just, my fingers are crossed that that gets released soon because I think uh, as, as a piece of art, I think you're right. It, it is really prescient. I'm glad you brought up dream analysis because you discussed dream analysis within the Lazarus project with respect to Carl Jung. Did Bowie read Young, or was this something that was just more integral to the development of Lazarus itself? Um, I dug around a lot of interviews. I mean, Bowie says a lot through his career, but he does make reference to Young a couple of times, crucially, um, in some songs. Um, you know, there's Shadow Man from the, from the late 60s, which is all about the archetype of the shadow. And then he drops Young's name into the lyrics of uh Drive in Saturday from 1973. Um, but later on, you know, he starts sort of mentioning dreams and his Jungian approach to dreams in interviews in the uh, late 80s and in the 90s, um, where we see him engaging with archetypal figures quite sort of openly. Um, I'm referring mostly to uh, number one outside where you have the minotaur, this horned figure, uh, and the little girl, this sort of anima figure, They're very Jungian in their representation. Um, we also have the horned figure that he gets tattooed to the back of his leg. Uh, but the real breakthrough in terms of the Jungian approach was uh, in these interviews that Tony Ursler did around the time when Bowie died, uh, where he was talking about um, how they went and saw the Red Book exhibition in New York together and had long conversations about um, approaches to art that uh, are informed by Jungian's approach to sort of excavating the the subconscious and the unconscious realms. And um, yeah, there, there's allusions to, uh, to, to Bowie being quite Jungian in his approach to, you know, uh, numinous visionary episodes. And, um, and certainly I think um, his, his use of archetypes sort of informs really a lot of the sort of narrative uh, thematic work that he's done in his career. The last major work you discuss in the book is Bowie's final album, Black Star, released in 2016, two days after his death. How did that album come to be, and what are the lyrical themes of the album? So the album came together remarkably quickly compared to the next day. Um, Bowie was very busy in 2014 um, with uh, finishing up you know, music videos and things for the extra bits and pieces that he was doing with the next day and um, working on this large jazz band version of Sue or in a season of crime with Maria Schneider. And um, at the same time, you know, it seems from the evidence of what everyone said who was working with him at the time, his illness was also very challenging. Um, Lazarus rehearsals were supposed to happen in the autumn, in the late summer and early autumn of the year, and Bowie couldn't attend because he was so ill. And similarly, 
sessions were supposed to be happening with Donny McCaslin and his band in late 2014 that couldn't go ahead and had to be postponed because Bowie was ill. So we can presume that um, his treatment for cancer at that point um, was was really quite hard hard for him to handle. But then in 2015, across three separate weeks, everything gets recorded and pulled together. Um, the vocals get recorded really quickly. Everything gets pulled together. Uh, it seems like in that last year of his life, in 2015, you know, the accelerator pedal is pushed. There's a quickening. There's, um, you know, that there's a tempo that gets reached where work is just coming together and everything's working for him. Um, and the lyrical themes on Black Star are quite, um, they're quite distant. They're, they're, in a way, they're a continuation um, to the approach of the next day where, you know, there, there are layers to it, but there's nothing very explicit. Um, you have these sort of fragmented images of, of, of scenes where violence happens. So, for example, with... Um, Tis a pity she's a whore. We sort of see some kind of mugging, but it's about the sensation in the aftermath of that mugging and how it feels and and feeling slighted, feeling angry, uh, feeling hard done by. Um, the music also leaning into notions of chaos and confusion. Um, and then we've got Sue, we're in a season of crime where a, a, a grisly crime may or may not have been uh, committed, sort of up to you as a listener to, to figure that out. And elsewhere we have um, sort of, we've got Girl Loves Me, which is almost like a cipher. It's got language that is, is drawn from literature, um, from uh, Clockwork Orange and, the, and the, the, the particular language that was uh, built around that, that Burgess developed, or NADSAT, and also bits of queer um, slang called Polari. And so you have these sort of, I guess, yeah, ciphers. You know, you've got these wonderful uh, songs that kind of, uh, you can unpack them, you can explore them, you can examine them from lots of different angles. I think the song Black Star is also like that as well. You know, you've got different characters emerging in the lyrics and their interactions are interesting. And what they say and what they sing affects the music under them. And I think, you know, this sort of staging of the songs, uh, these sort of flashes of theatrical performance that appear in each of these songs, um, is really impressionistic on Black Star. He's not, you know, getting up and singing, I am going to die soon. Uh, you know, I am really sick, get ready. It's much more these sort of, you know, uh, flashes of images, theatrical moments of, of action scenes, of places, uh, people, ideas, you know, that lead to uh, what seems to be um, a kind of ego death. You know, at the start you have... I realise this is rambling on a bit, I'm sorry, but at the start of the album you have this sort of, you know, this prayer-like incantation, this kind of longing to to be powerful. Uh, and by the end of it you have almost like a surrender. And each song on Lazarus there's, a you know, a little bit of a surrender from, you know, the ego to surrendering to chaos. And, and it's sort of a beautiful thing by the end. Um, and so I do think that all of that was very carefully put together, but also with a degree of um, quickening, with a degree of momentum, which makes it quite exciting. You draw connections between Aleister Crowley's idea that every man is a star and Carl Sagan's declaration that we are made of star stuff. And you take those ideas and you connect them with Bowie's Ziggy Stardust persona, delivering a message of hope only to be destroyed on stage by his fans. How do these ideas feed into the character in Black Star, or is 
that idea just kind of a hindsight thing given the um, circumstances behind the album's release? Yeah, I think that it's both of those things, you know, um, the the imagery of Black Star, the, the star itself, you know, the symbol of the dead star, um, it feels very potent. But, of course, Jonathan Barnbrook came up with that independent of Bowie telling him anything, just picking up on the mood of the music. Um, so it wasn't this, you know, this overall plan to like, you know, let, let's embed the image of the black hole, the black star, and let's make this thread work all the way through. However, the thread is there. This idea that um, the the black hole is some kind of conduit to uh, another iteration of life, another in heart, you know, perhaps another evolution, like in the movie Stanley Kubrick's Space Odyssey, where you know the black hole is a is a doorway to advancement, um, which is obviously a reference that Bowie has picked up on with his space oddity. Um, and again, you know, from there, you've got these lovely sort of star-bound narratives which really resonate. And so I suppose in that writing I was just pulling together references that are relevant to Bowie's story and showing how they resonate together to create almost a kind of cosmic uh, philosophy. And um, the idea that we're made of star star stuff um is this you know this lovely idea that we are that some part of us is immortal even though it is dust it is everlasting and so that is hopeful and bleak at the same time and and it's also mysterious and it hints to versions of immortality that perhaps are something we can wrap our minds around you know bowie in the late the latter parts of his career spoke often about how you know the condition of of post post modernity is that we don't have god anymore and there's no there's nothing to hang on to that's spiritual and i feel like you know, in his work he did refer to this idea and it's emerging other places too that you know if we look to the cosmos and we look to the mysteries of the universe there's actually um, a way to access something spiritual and something that perhaps will soothe our anxieties about death and our existence if we ponder it. And so that's what that was all about, just pulling those ideas together. But of course, I was really happy to discover that um, Bowie spoke of the Ziggy Stardust musical in which um, Ziggy is torn apart by fans and he becomes a black hole. It's this idea that was actually written in to a script that he was developing in, in 1973, actually becomes a theme that he evokes at the end of his life on his last album. We were just discussing Young earlier in uh, Dream Analysis, and when you're talking about Black Star and Bowie's perception since the release of that album, you draw connections you draw connections between Young and the star imagery of the album, suggesting that the star illustrates the mythical hero's journey in search of knowledge and perfection of the self. How does that fit in with the themes of the album? Well, it fits in with the themes of Bowie's oeuvre, you know, the the kind of journey that Bowie's been on. If we consider the parallel, you know, to the to Dr. Dave Bowman's journey in in the Kubrick film Space Odyssey, where you know his journey to the stars results in enhancement and his evolution to a new higher form of being and a form of enlightenment i suppose bowie's journey as to the stars from you know major tom's liftoff in 1969 all the way through to black stars sort of you know depicted ascension also provides a heroic arc and 
I thought it would be nice to to pull that idea of the hero's journey in because it's it's mythological, it's Jungian, but also you know it's also the song that finishes Lazarus. The you know heroes is the finale of the musical, and Bowie's most famous song is called Heroes, and so that fitted in nicely into the overall philosophy and the arc of what I was trying to draw. Um, the fact that Bowie is also consciously bringing science fiction into the into the scene. Um, even at the end of his life, shows that, you know, that thread is something that is meant to be noticed. And also um, in terms of the hero's journey, I feel like there's an affinity with this um, idea of transcendence, this idea of ascension, of there's something else, there's something beyond this realm. Um, you know, you can still ach- still achieve wholeness and still achieve unification of opposites within yourself. And so these lovely ideas that are not only Jungian but Nietzschean, um, this idea that the ubermensch, you know, this idea of uniting um good and bad to a point of beyond good and bad um, is something that I feel can be evoked from Black Star, particularly from the halfway point to the end where we have a surrender to chaos and we have a serenity that kind of enters the scene. And obviously a lot of this is, uh, you know, after the fact, when we listened to the album for the few days while he was still alive, um, these arcs were not as pronounced. But of course, as I say in the book, you can't take Bowie's death out of this. It's part of it, you know. Um, all art is in, is impacted by the force and nature of the way that it's encountered. And, you know, the, the, Bowie's death is unavoidably written into the context of this album now. And so as, you know, an analysis exercise, we have to consider it as part of the story. I want to read a passage from the closing of your book. The suggestion that David Jones was haunted and sometimes troubled by his rock star doppelganger is threaded right through the Bowie star narrative, but in the last works the opposite feels more accurate. Bowie is all we can see, a vast star image completely remystified and haunting the scene as a guy called David Jones, the artist who was ill and we didn't know. Can you share, us, can you share with us your idea behind that? Right. Well, I think I was thinking at the time about how someone might pick up my book and want to know the behind the scenes story, you know, what was going on with David Jones? Um, What was the nature of his illness? What was, you know, what was his personal life like? I think there is, amongst fans anyway, there is a, a hunger for that type of information. And my book purposefully doesn't touch any of that stuff. And I wanted to address that, I suppose, in that section to say that, um, you know, we, we we consider David Bowie, but we have to remember that David Bowie was a performance persona of an artist called David Jones. And actually, we hardly know anything about David Jones at the end of his life. And so all we have to work with is the art that he made. And he purposefully made this art uh, so that his star image was so outsized you know we had uh, sort of iconic imagery mythologized imagery his face obscured you access denied um also in the scene of that is the you know the touring exhibition which was this sort of you know deconstruction of bowie through fashion books makeup uh, ephemera equipment footage it was like you know bowie became something larger than human and that's what i was referring to in that section that you know haunting that larger than life, re-mystified 
star image is is this real man who is a sensitive guy who, who liked to read and was really thoughtful and um, wanted to do it this way and in, in a way you know he's the one who's haunting the scene and it's not Bowie being haunted by Dave, you know, it's not, sorry, D- David Jones being haunted by Bowie, uh, the, the, the troublesome persona that he's had to live with the other way around. Leah, this has been a great conversation and I've really enjoyed hearing your analysis on, on Bowie and his final albums. Um, I know a very difficult topic for fans, but also given the circumstances behind that. And your book is absolutely amazing and you accomplished this so admirably. And I thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you for having me. My name is Bradley Morgan and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Leah Cardos. Her book is Black Star Theory, The Last Works of David Bowie and is published by Bloomsbury Academic.